Good morning. We're uh, Billy and Lori Cutchins, and these are our kiddos, Isaac. Well, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. My name is Isaac Cutchins. Tell your age as you go oh, around. I'm Isaac Cutchins, and I'm 13 years old. I'm Vivian. I am 11 years old. I'm Jasmine. I'm 7 years old. Jasmine, 7. I'm Jane, and I'm not 10 years old. All right. And we, you said 9, but he meant to say 7. Real quick, Isaac, we adopted Isaac when he was uh, 2 years old from the foster care system. We live in the DFW area. And then the next adoption was Viviana from birth through um, this adoption agency, which was at the time called Generations. And then when Vivi was three, CPS called us with a surprise that Jaden, uh, who was two at the time, two and a half, had entered foster care and Jaden is Isaac's biological brother. So they're only 10 months apart, uh, one year in school, Jaden and Vivi are. We call and them the twins. The twins, in a lot of ways, they really are. And then at the time we got the surprise call for Jaden, we had already completed our home study process through Generations Again for a domestic infant adoption. And so nine months after Jaden came home, we got the call that Jasmine had been born. And Jasmine came home when she was three days old. She was born in Waco, or Colleen. Colleen. Yeah, and Vivi was born in Waco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, you guys can go get us there. Yeah. And the reason we're, do you wanna talk about why we're recording? Oh yeah, so yeah, this is distracting, I know. We've been meaning to record ourselves doing a transracial discussion, or a, a multiracial adoption for a while, so pardon we, me, the recording equipment. We've been coming to these trainings for about nine years. Y'all are definitely the biggest class. Yeah, seriously. We've sat in front of three or four couples before and they're like, it's cozy. And we recently started a podcast as, uh, if you want to look us up, it's on Facebook where Adoption Creates Families on Facebook. We also have a blog. So our blog tells all of the adoption stories dating back for all of our children. So you can see us at adoptioncreatesfamilies.blogspot.com. Way back when blogs were popular. Yeah, so we abandoned the blog and now we're podcasting. Yeah. And, and that's about it. Okay. So, yeah. So we were brought in to give training sessions to discuss race and and transracial adoption and so typically uh, I start out by saying that we didn't set out to adopt outside of our race we didn't have some master plan it's not that God specifically weighed on either one of our hearts to adopt outside our race or specifically adopt black children and the reason that's relevant is because back in the when Isaac first came home this was the you know 2006 and it seemed like at the time it was trendy to adopt outside your race and specifically black children I I guess I I blame Angelina Jolie for that and Madonna but but it was a very trendy thing and 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 we knew a lot of couples that that went out of their way to do that it, and it seemed like they did it specifically because it was we, trendy. We had we would come across people who, when they talked about adoption, they would specifically say, we would like to adopt African-American children. We were a little bit like, what? It kind of took us back a little bit, like, why spe so specific? So when we were adopting, we had made it, we had two crossroads, as any couple does. One was allowing any race to play into the selection process and the other one was to go just Caucasian children because we are Caucasian and our initial thought was we didn't want it to be so obvious that we had adopted every single place we went we didn't want it to be so obvious that we had infertility issues because obviously that was a very painful part of our life 
And so our initial reaction was, let's just say Caucasian only because then we don't have to deal with all of the stuff that comes with it. And very quickly we turned um, and said, you know, if God has called us to adopt, that adoption was not God's plan B, it was just we didn't know what God's plan was. If it was always God's plan for us to adopt, then we believe strongly it was always God's plan to, to choose who those children would be. So that's when we opened it up um, and, and within six months got the call from CPS about Isaac. So it's important to us to note that because we don't we we want to dispel any you know stereotypes or myths of white parents adopting black kids that that was not our story it wasn't our intention um and we just were open to any adoption that the lord brought our way yeah to be perfectly frank whenever we were filling out the paperwork and we were in the process of getting certified uh, foster to become foster parents it asked about race and the conversation between Lori and I was, I think one of us looks to the other and said, what do you think? And the other one said to the other, what do you think? And one person said, I don't know if I care about race. And the other one said the same. And that was about it. That was the conversation. And oftentimes it, we found that couples for the most part will have similar responses. What might hold them back might be other extenuating circumstances, which Billy will talk about. You know, the family members. Yeah, sorry. Usually we give the 2 o'clock. We're in the 2 o'clock hour, so. We're not good at the 8 in the morning. I'm like, how many times have we said this? We've met people that have said, I just don't think I can adopt outside of our race because they have some uncle hillbilly distant uncle that they never talk to and is a racist, and I just don't want to expose my kid to that. And, you know, our, our response is always, I mean, I have that uncle and I don't really talk to him very much but I do remember there being all kind you know from the moment we told our family members that we were open to any race we it kind of ran the gamut of reactions you know but it, it was for the most part you know our family members were we were met with trepidation I remember one family member saying my family member said well son you'll never know what it's like to be black and I, and I thought, well, yeah, that's true. I'll also never know what it's like to be a woman, but that doesn't mean I can't raise a daughter. And, and that was like a, that, we don't know if that was impactful to the family <laughs> member he said that to, but it was kind of affirming for us because what we, what we were facing at the time was a huge kind of like disruption of, and it may still be around, I just don't pay attention to it anymore, of society that had this real bold statement that, black children did not fare as well in white families as they would if they were adopted by black families and that was understandable we understood where that mentality was coming from but as we began to navigate parenthood with our kids we realized how misguided that that was and so billy's statement in saying well just because he's not a woman doesn't mean he can't have a daughter is important to us because what that means is is he needed to find out how to parent a girl and the same way that I had to find out how to parent a boy, we've had to find out how to parent kids that are not of our same race. It's all a learning process. Yep. Nobody's born knowing these things. Every adult comes to this place where they learn how to do whatever it is you learn how to do. So when you bring your newborn home from the hospital, you don't know how to you know, take care of them. You learn how to take care of them. When you bring your black daughter home, you don't naturally know how to do her hair, but you learn how to do her hair. Um, and so- And we've had black moms that have said, we, it's not like we're born knowing how to do hair, but you know, right. they have to learn how they to do to it too. They have to learn it too. So it's not like this innate thing that is instinct that everyone has to learn it. Everyone has the same learning curve. 
The only difference is within the black community is those moms are raised up with aunts and grandmas and extended family where they are kind of like raised up learning it. So their learning curve into adulthood might not be as severe as mine where I had to learn it from complete scratch. So I understood that the learning curve was going to be different. I respected that, but I also, I also recognized that everybody has to learn everything you know. So that, that was comforting to me as especially with the boys, it was one thing, but then when we got the call that our, that our child was a girl and she was fully black, I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? And real quickly, I just, you know, you learn as you go. Their hair's different when they're babies and then they get older and you just go with it. So for us, early on, we feel like we got our heart in the right place and then we got to work getting our head in the right place. And, and that meant getting books about adoption, getting books about race and meeting other people that had adopted outside our race. We were really blessed in that we live in the DFW area and at the time there was this great ministry, it's still around, called Tapestry and uh, they were they were just starting out at, at the time that, that Isaac came home and so it was, a, it was a great opportunity for us to meet other families that look like us because what we learned and what we've learned over the years in in surrounding ourselves with other black people, that it's very important that you know that we have those people that we can ask questions about hair and skin, and when issues about race happen in the news and, and in politics, you know, we we found that the the friends and relationships that we've made over the years those have been crucial for us in in coaching us through how to raise our kids. And the reason it's crucial is because, particularly when Billy touches on things happening within the news in the last really eight years in particular, it's just been a very racially sensitive culture in the sense that there's been a lot of things that have happened. And so we didn't anticipate when we launched out in 2006 as parents of black children that we would face such things. We kind of were under that that notion that a lot of white people were under, that that was like the civil rights movement in the 60s and those types of things didn't really happen anymore. And when we had to face the fact that it is happening on a fairly regular basis and it affects us and it affects our children, I couldn't really go to my white friends because my white friends had the same mentality where it was like, well, we don't really know the story, Lori, and no one was there. And, you know, there was just a lot of those pat responses. And when I would talk to my black friends about it, it was, you know, yeah, my grandfather went through this and, and, and we've seen this and I took my kids to the movie theater and this was my experience two weeks ago. And so that was super impactful to me because it was a perspective that the natural environment I had grown up in didn't have because they didn't have to. And so my friends have it because they've had to have it. Um, and it's a true life perspective. It's not politically motivated. It's not media based. It is true life stories of things that have happened that can't really be denied as being racially based when you hear the stories firsthand. And you can't argue with somebody's lived experiences. You can argue with a notion, you can argue with a news story, but you can't argue with somebody's lived experiences. Those experiences have been um, vitally important to the way that we have handled those types of things as they've come up. So back to uh, towards the beginning of our journey, when Isaac first came home, it was it was certainly a culture shift for us. I remember the first time I have a very vivid memory of the first time I ever took him out in public somewhere. I went to uh, there's this used bookstore in Denton that I used to go to all the time, and I took him there, and and I just remember just feeling stared at and. 
it was it was a it was a crazy feeling, and it's it's a feeling that I, I still have, and Isaac's now thirteen. Uh, this feeling of that we can't just walk into a Target uh, and not feel like we have an audience, and and we felt back then, and we still do today. You know, kind of laugh it off like they're just they're just staring at us because we're really a good-looking family, um, because we are. But and I will say that when the children were younger, it was a lot more pervasive to go out. Yes. When you're holding a baby on your hip, everybody wants to stop and ask how you got that baby. But they're not going to ask me how my 13-year-old walking with me. So was he adopted? I mean, that's just awkward. So they're not going to put themselves in an awkward position. But when the kids were real little, it was it was almost every single time. We went oh, out. the comments are just super exhausting. It's just so much. I mean, it, it would. I, I mean, don't mind somebody asking, are they adopted? But that was never where it ended. It was like once you answered one question, it was, it was like they felt like they had an open door to ask all kinds of questions. And, and that has been a struggle. Yeah, we, you know, I think back when, when the kids first came home, we were a lot more likely to kind of, um, if somebody started engaging us in conversation, we, we felt an open door to, to discuss race, you know, 50 years of race relations with this person or or give them a 30-minute dissertation on adoption. And they would just be like, I just wanted to know where the birth mother was. Yeah, I, <laughs> like, I was just being... You be, get for asking yeah. questions you shouldn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> so. But even the most innocuous thing, you know, we're out getting burgers and some family comes... or. Yeah, it's always a female. I don't want to generalize, but some, we've never had a male approach us yeah. except for he. The one time, literally in ten years that we've been parents, that we had a male approach us and ask us anything was we were in New York City. Billy had our boys, our friends' boys, and another set of friends' boys. So six black boys, ranging in all different ages, and he took them into the restroom. And an elderly uh, black gentleman said, "Are these your boys?" Yeah, he goes, "Are these your boys?" And I go, "Yeah." Some of them. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, and and he goes, oh, "What do you say?" He goes, say? "You take him to church," and Billy goes, "Yes, sir." He goes, "You take him to sporting events," and Billy goes, "Yes, sir." He goes, "Good job." Yeah. That was the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so he came out. and He was like, "I'm feeling good." <laughs> yeah. He'd been given the approval. You know, it, it is very funny. I will say that for the, by and large, it's it's. I know it's a generalization, but the black community has been incredibly engaging to us and welcoming of us when we supportive. go to, supportive when we go to church or when we go to like a, a parade or something when we're out in public it's black people that are not at all awkward don't put us on the spot yeah we don't feel stared at i mean it, we feel very comfortable it's typically white folks that will come up to us and and say you know we think it's so great what you're doing and that's i'm very, like it's still to this day very common yeah, we'll hear. And I always respond with, what are we doing? Because I want to put it back on them. Like, you tell me <laughs> what it is you're getting at. Yeah, I'm um, buying my son a burger. Right. That's what and, I'm doing. And so when they unpack that, yeah, exactly. And I think it's great. And I have at times that if they have other kids, if they have children with them, I'll say, and it's great what you're doing. And then they are kind of dumbfounded because they're like, oh, what are we doing? Because <laughs> I know what they're getting at. Mm -hmm. But I want them to know that um, we're not doing anything other than parenting and we're not doing anything that any other parent doesn't do. Um, we're not out to, to be... Oh, we're, <laughs> things are falling off the walls. Mm -hmm. We're not out to set um, any kind of like a lesson in life. We're not like the peace union or there's no message we're trying to send. We're just parents. Yeah. And so we have to make that really clear early on in conversations where people want to send praise our way because it's awkward and it puts, us, <laughs> it puts our children in a position where they have to feel like charity or a project and they're not. 
So I'm super sensitive to uh, anybody trying to say we're doing anything for society. Yeah, and and that's if there's any message I would want to I would want to give it's that being a, being a multiracial family is a lot of work, but we are still just normal parents. You know, we still will. Laura and I will spend hours talking about well, do we put Jaden on this basketball team or this basketball team? Th- those kids, you know, the blessing in them and their attitude is that their their greatest fear is that when we go to lunch, am I going to make them share a soda as opposed to do they each get their own? I mean, truly, they really don't have a lot of like in-depth, and even our 13-year-old, we'll bring him out in a little while and do like a little interview, but they don't have a lot of like mm-hmm. in-depth, deep uh, pain or, or angst associated with life in general. I mean, really, their biggest concern is, are we going to have root beer? I mean, it, yeah. it really, and we're like, no, and they're like, my life is over. What is the point of living we, if I have to drink water? <laughs> yeah, but we, you know... Years ago, we were at a, a tapestry event, and there was an adult adoptee that was giving a talk, and she said something that just uh, was so impactful. She said, I am adopted. Like, adopted is a past tense verb. It is an event that happened. It's not, you know, she said, I, I say it that way, not I am adopted, it's I was adopted. And it, to me, seemed such an incredibly healthy approach to have that it's, it's a big moment, and it's a defining moment, but it's not the defining moment. It's not all that you are. Yes. And we've tried to approach the same attitude with our kids that it's, it's not anything to be ashamed of that we're, that we're proud of adoption. We're proud of their race. We're, we're proud. And, and you know, the, in the circumstances we have with our kids, it's not like we're able to, you know, when they're 18, we're not going to sit them down and go, Oh, so by the way, you're adopted. Right. We've had, (laughs) you can't do that with our kids. They know they're adopted and we're like, and funny story about that. So we've always to, we've always told that illustration where people have asked us, do they know we're adopted? And we go, uh, yeah. But Jaden, literally a week ago, he sat this one right here, who said he was 10 years old, um, had an incident at school where a kid was making fun of him for being adopted. It doesn't happen very often. It did, and he was upset about it. And he's telling Billy the story, and he says to Billy and Dad, I don't understand. I mean, how did he even know? I've told no one I was adopted. And we were literally like, huh? <laughs> Okay, so do they know they're adopted? Like, have we had this conversation? I mean, it was a, I mean, he was he was really flustered about this. And I'm and like, son, really? do you realize that when we go out in the world, like a lot of families don't look like us? And he's like, no, I guess not. I mean, it hadn't occurred. He, of course, knew he was adopted. But it hadn't occurred to him that just by looking at us, other people would put the pieces together. I mean, we thought that was kind of cute. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and, and, and to me, it, it, it did show a healthy attitude that in his in his world, I'm just dad and she's yes. just mom. Right. It, and it's not anything more complicated than that. Yeah. I, and I found that to be incredibly healthy. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, one one topic that comes up a lot in w- when you're around other adoptive families and you go to adoptive talks or read books is the idea of the primal wound. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. It's, it's the idea that, ad- that all adoptees have this uh, like a hole in their heart that can only be filled by a birth mom. And we just don't see that as being a healthy attitude to have for the kids. I think that all, all, everybody has a, maybe has a, a place in their heart for a mom and a dad, but for a biological parent, we just don't see it. We haven't seen it in any of our kids, and we've actually seen the opposite, where in some fam- adoptive families where they have bought into the primal wound ideology that nothing will ever fix it because I was, par- I was taken from my birth mother, 
What I've seen is that adoptive moms in particular sometimes have a hard time bonding with their child because they're protecting their own heart. That if I can't fill, if fulfill for you what your birth mother can and I never will, then I'm not going to get that deep invested because what if I get hurt? What if when you turn 18 you run off and you go back, is what people like to use that terminology, back to, and, and then I'm nothing to you anymore. And we just have not seen that play out in all of our uh, fr friends who are adult adoptees several who were adopted by white parents in the 60s and 70s. Um, that was not the case for them. They said we did not grow up feeling that way. We certainly had questions. We wanted to know. We wanted to meet our birth family when we were adults. But we didn't walk through life with feeling like something was missing, even in an all-white environment where we were the only black one. I have a very close friend um, who was the only black child in, in within miles. And she had her parents had also adopted um, uh, Asian children. And so she told, within um, a couple of days of me meeting her, she told me a story about how her mother sent her to culture camp when she was a child, but the only culture camp they knew was the Asian culture camp. So she learned the dance, she wore the dress. So she's like, I was not only the only black child in the white community, I was the only black child in the Asian community. And she has didn't such she a make healthy- a, Didn't she make a comment about her? She was like six inches taller than everybody else Oh, she's else very there. tall, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, I have to see the pictures, find me the pictures, because I've got I've to gotta have this in my mind. It was hilarious. And she has such a positive view of the whole thing. Of course she has pain, of course she has hurt from her life, everybody does. But she is not bitter or resentful for the decisions that were made on her behalf as a child because it brought her to where she is. And we have discovered that in our children as we've talked about it. Of course, they are all going to go through their teen years and their young adult years and they're going to process things differently. So far, that just has not been a factor. And, and, I'm, not, and I'm not scared of it if it does. Right. I mean, because it could. I, I'm not, I'm not going to... I'm, I'm not going to live in fear that the kids might want to do that. I mean, like, it's my job as I'm still dad, and it's going to be my job to shepherd them through that and to be with them through part of that journey if they, if they feel it. And we've died, I, we don't feel competitive towards no. birth family or the black community or anything that would try to put a claim on our children. We don't feel competitive. Nope. We feel like they are their own person and their own individuals in the world. And whatever might come of that is what's going to come of that. It's not about me. It should never have been about me, and it doesn't need to be about me 20 years from now. It's really about them. So in talking about just, uh, just the reaction of going out into the world, I think that for me it's been really important to, to give off the message that you do not have to earn your right to be your child's mother. So there was a period of time where I really felt like I had to make sure that my children, I still want to make sure that they present well in the world, but I was like really obsessed with making sure that I seemed adequate, particularly with Jasmine, to be her mother. So I was very particular in what she looked like, how her hair was done, make, making sure that we were culturally sensitive, all those things. So one day, I, it was early in the morning, I dropped the other kids off at school and I just ran into Kroger real quick. I was gonna get a few things and leave and she was probably two and a half or three. And I hadn't fixed her hair because I was gonna do it later that day for an event we had to go to that night. And t doing her hair, depending on what I'm doing, can take up to two hours. So it's not like you're just brushing your hair, putting in a ponytail and leaving. So it was gonna take time and I just didn't have that time. And um, I turned around in a different part of the store and the, one of the employees who had seen me earlier in the store was suddenly there. And she, her only question to me was who does her hair? And I knew immediately she was shaming me because Jasmine's hair looked rough. So I said, I do, I'm her mother. And she said, she handed me a business card and said, I do hair, I can come to your house. 
And I said, well, that's great. I've been doing her hair her whole life. Uh, I appreciate that. I don't need your services. And I didn't really know what else to say. Now I would have a whole lot more things to say. At the time, I was just like shocked and really crushed because I'm like, I have gone to all kinds of efforts and today's the one, the one day. day. <sighs> so I just left all my groceries, got in the car, call, called him crying. I was like, I'm never going out in the world again. We're just going to be like these, you know, hermit crabs. <laughs> We're going to be recluses. <laughs> Sounds um, good to me. And, uh, but then I got kind of mad. And I was like, that lady did not have a right to do that. This is not her child just because she is in the same racial community as her. She has no claim over her. She has no claim over me. And um, and thank and God for the black for the black moms that we know that I called. Who, who once you yeah, I called my, after I talked to him. I called my close friends who are black women and, who have daughters as well, and they're like, Lori, if we went out like that, she wouldn't have said a word to us. She thought she could come to you because you're white, and she wanted to tell you a thing or two. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And um, they said, you know, you just have to stand up for yourself and say, look. And so now I feel like I'm a little bit more um, strong. I'm stronger. You know, the years have gone by. I've had more experiences. But the lesson I took from that is I do not owe anybody anything. I don't have to prove that I'm uh, that I have the right to be her mom because God said that I am. Yep. Um, and. I don't have to answer to anybody. I, don't, I, should, I didn't even have to answer who did her hair. I could have just said, why are you asking? Which is what I would do now. Why? Why do you want to know? It's really none of your business. But I also, just because of that, I'm not going to like go the opposite end and be like rebellious and say, well, I'm just going to go out with her looking rough, whatever. Because it's not whatever. It's super important that she look presentable. It respects her. It respects the, the black community. And that is what I'm going to do because it's the right thing to do. So that is probably one of the harder things that's happened to me personally in reference to the kids, but we know it certainly won't be the last thing. And everything that happens is like, it gives you the ability to then the next time something happens, you're, you have some tools under your belt. You're a little bit stronger, you've, you know, a little bit tougher. And so that, that's been helpful. Yeah. In thinking back to, you know, when Isaac first came home and, and how awkward it was to go out in public, you know, I look back on that and, and, and I realized that it, it, it was a difficult, it was just difficult dealing with people staring, dealing with awkward comments. And I guess the best advice or what worked for me is just giving it a little time, trying to find the balance of not telling people our life story and not being rude. Uh, one connection we made our one time I don't think I was there. I think you told me about this. At Chick-fil-A, a, a white mom approached us and said, are, are they your kids? And It was kind of like, oh, here we go again. Yeah, it was here we go again and said yes. And the lady handed me a, handed a business card and said, oh, okay, well, we, we have a... Uh, an adoption ministry at our church uh, and and so she said and those are my kids and she points to two black boys yeah. sitting at the table and she was like oh okay sit down <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'll answer any question you have you're safe <laughs> so you know it's kind of what again a lesson like don't always write everybody off sometimes yeah. people really do have good intentions or yeah. uh, maybe they uh, have like genuine questions you know just because somebody's asking questions doesn't mean it's necessarily a bad thing but oftentimes it's literally it really is just them being nosy and you don't have to feel the need to satisfy the curiosity of a stranger you're never going to see again yeah. because then you lose and your child loses and the only gain is they get information that they didn't need to have in the first place but if it's a genuine conversation about adoption or a genuine conversation that somebody wants to have about race relations then i think you know it's healthy and good it, it sharpens you um, so as time goes by, we've learned to kind of see the difference. Yeah, it, it gets easier. And 
Well, some things get easier and some things don't. You know, uh, I, I'll say that Jasmine's hair does not get easier. Uh, no. and, and and the reason it doesn't is because, because the texture changes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh no, it's more her personality. It's it, she's that's, like a mess now, and I'm like, would you sit down and quit your squawking? <laughs> when she yeah. was a baby, it was like I could strap her into her high chair and just go for it. Now she can run, and she's fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think you know when she was a baby, you know, and she would scream while getting her hair done. Well, she didn't scream when she was a baby because she had a pacifier, and we put on like Sesame Street. She didn't start screaming until she was five, and like started realizing she had all kinds of. Opinions about everything and yeah. it definitely got harder well, and and again meeting other black women they would say uh, they would tell us that when they were kids and their mom would do their hair they would scream mom would have to chase them around the house with the hairbrush threatening them and so I was like oh okay so this is like the normal rite of passage and they're like oh yes yeah and then I asked when did it get better and they said never, never. <laughs> Jasmine says mommy when can I do my own hair I said when you go for yeah. for college and you have a roommate who can do it yeah, as soon as possible that's the answer <laughs> and I'm like until then we are not leaving this to chance because <laughs> you let it go a day or two and it's bad things are going to happen back there but so. but and and you know, Paul talks about in uh, he talks about not causing another person to stumble right and you know the way I look at Jasmine's hair and her skin and the boy's skin is while I don't have to prove myself as a father to anybody. I still have, a, I guess the word would be obligation, that when we go out in public, that, that they are represented. That if, a, if, my, if my kids step out of the house and look like you know, they just rolled out of bed, and another black person sees them and sees they have a white dad, and, and if they were to think in their mind, oh, that kid's got a tough road ahead of them, I can't have that. I don't want that. I, I don't want it. I want the boys and Jasmine and Vivi too to appear in the world that they've got parents that Take are, care of them. are yeah are are deeply devoted to their well-being. Right. And I think that that appearance it speaks to them just them being cared for. Um, so in talking about just kind of like the um, way that society views our family or views th these types of things in general. A major hurdle that we've had to come across over is the notion of colorblind. So still to this day, shockingly, we hear often people saying, well, I just think it would be better if we were colorblind. I think it would be better if people didn't see race, if people didn't see color. I don't see color when I see your kids. I just see cute kids or whatever. We've heard it all. And what I respond with is actually it's vitally important that you see color and that you see them for who they are because this is not a condition that we need to apologize for or we need to like gloss over. This is the way God created them. Our children are created in the image of God in the same way that we are, in the same way that an Indian family, in the same way an Asian family, in the same way a Native American family. They are, we are all created in the image of God. So when we ignore the differences in, in ethnicity, it's like we're saying we're excusing it, like there's something to, wrong with it. And so for us, we've said, please don't be colorblind. Please embrace the beauty in God's creation for all that it is. Recognize it because our kids don't get to, don't get to have the ability to go out in the world and, and be completely blind, you know, have themselves like be ghosts to the whole world. The world sees them, whether you want to admit it or not, the world sees them. And the other notion to that is that we have to also, you also have to recognize as if you are adopting fully black children and your white parents, is that you're what my black friends refer to as white insurance in their life. 
And so when they're with you, there's a protection there that says, I'll vouch for him, I'll vouch for her, and you're immediately believed. An example I have is that um, a girlfriend and I were in um, Maryland at a conference, and we were up in the hotel room, and she realized she left her purse in the locked conference room. And so I was like, well, you we gotta go get your purse. And she's like, yeah, but can you come with me? And we're grown women. And I'm like, yeah, let's go together. So we're walking down the hall. And I said to her, are you nervous? Like security's gonna come and like get it, look, you wonder why we're breaking in. And she said, no, because you're with me. This is a grown woman, mother with children. And we laughed about it and she called me her white insurance. And it's absolutely a fact because had we been stopped and I had said, oh, she left her purse. There, it's no question that's her purse. But if she was by herself or she was with another black friend and she was going in the room, she would have had to pull out her wallet, proved with her that it was her, that kind of thing. And, and I've seen that over and over and over again. And I've seen that even with Isaac. And I've had to tell Isaac, look, particularly when he has a substitute teacher, he had a substitute yesterday and the substitute was diffusing oil in the room when he came in. So he started coughing really bad. And she said to him, you're overreacting. And if you're going to disrupt the class and cough like that, go out in the hall. And he's like, I went out in the hall. I mean, I really was coughing. And he was nervous he was going to get in trouble because it, it, to him, it looked like a little disrespectful to the teacher for him to leave the room. And I, we're telling this to the school nurse because I needed the school nurse to know you can't have substitutes diffusing things in classrooms. Like, you've got kids with asthma. Yeah, this is not okay. So the nurse is like, Isaac, next time that happens, like, come tell me because we need to shut that down. And so when I got in the car, I said, Isaac, it's actually super important if you ever leave a classroom for any reason, whether you're told to by the teacher or anything, that you go find an authority figure or a trusted adult and tell them why you left the room. I said, because that sub doesn't know you. All she knows is whatever experiences she's had with other almost six foot tall, 13 year old black boys, positive or negative. And so she's gonna base her experiences with you based on her past experiences. And so you have to have somebody that can vouch for you that if she wants to write a note to your teacher that you were disrupting class and came in making all this ruckus and blah, 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 that you went to a trusted adult and told them the story so that they have your back. And I have to tell him that on a regular basis because he's used to being protected under the guise of his parents. I said, Isaac, when a sub walks in, she doesn't know your parents are white. She doesn't know that you're an honor roll student and that you're, you have an impeccable behavior record. She just sees you for what you are. And we're not claiming she sees you in a negative light, but we're recognizing that in the event that she or he does, you need to have somebody vouching for you. Um, and, and that is, is something that a, a white child wouldn't necessarily have to have. Maybe in a situation with a sub, maybe they would, but maybe they don't. My, my daughter, because she's a girl and because she's light-skinned, would, would be able to leave the room, have her coughing fit, and come back without any worry that she's gonna get marked as a behavior problem. Isaac has to watch that. Those are the kinds of conversations we have to have with them. Um, whether people agree with it or not, it really is the world that we live in. I remember early on, a family member, shortly after Isaac had come home, maybe a few weeks or a couple months later, said, I just don't see him as black anymore. And we thought, okay, we don't want the message to be to our kids that we love you despite your race. Right. We want to raise them in a way that says we love for your, all that you are. Yeah, we love you know that you are black. We love that you are a boy or a girl. You know, it's it's an it's it's one aspect of your character. And I don't want their race to be seen as something that we have to overcome in order to raise them. Right, or then anybody has to overcome in order to love them, which just doesn't make any sense. So Isaac is now 13, even though he looks like he's like 19. 
they told us when he was two he was going to be tall, and we knew that, but we, we didn't know he was going to be this tall. He's not done growing. Um, and he's very articulate. He's an advanced theater, which I like to brag about because I helped him with that application and his audition. We always joke that, uh, you know, you, you'll hear that story about, like, behind every great man is a mom. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, exactly. I mean, as soon as I got into NGHS, she said, no, this is not for you. This is for me. I got you it's in. My this win. is mine. It's my win. The trophy is mine. I am the honor student. Who spent so. more time working on the essay, you or us? Yeah. <laughs> he wrote the essay. I coached him through it. But I was literally like, no, you can't say that. No, you can't say that. <laughs> We're going for the win here, buddy. We started seven days ago. We took every single day. Every <laughs> single every day. day. Like, He's like, are we done yet? No, we are winners. And winners never quit. <laughs> so when he texted me and said, I got into National Junior Honor Society, I said, of course you did. <laughs> we were going to take, we were not going to take no for an answer. No. Um, so some of the things that we had discussed, do you recall? Now I'm a blank slate. Yeah, so am I. What did we talk about in the car, buddy? <laughs> what, uh, you, uh, what I wanted to ask you, for, and we're gonna have, we're, you're being recorded for the podcast for the first time. Okay. <laughs> is um, hey, mom. <laughs> is how uh, oftentimes um, the perception is that children raised by white parents, who are in your case predominantly raised in a white community, predominantly raised in a white church, predominantly raised in a white school. How do you feel when you're with the kids that are of your race now that you're in a middle school? His middle school is very diverse. How do you feel now that you're in a middle school when you're around other black boys and girls? I think there's, in some ways, I'm kind of similar and some some ways kind of different. I think in some ways, I mean, I've got the body of a giant black kid who's... <laughs> plays football and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the kind of mindset, I'm just not really, I mean, it's, it's the stereotype is most black kids have a certain buck to them, like a certain like urge to fight or urge to like to get up in your face or disrespect or anything like that. I just haven't, I've never had that. I think that's one of the major differences that I'll find inside of, uh, whenever I'm comparing myself to your peers. Kids. Yeah. And then like, Oftentimes the fear has been that parents will say, well, once they get into a black community, they, they might get teased for behaving white, or they might get teased for um, not having like the, the terminology or the body language that they would if they were raised in their own community. I don't, that's, I, I I'm personally myself, I never really felt that way because I kind of feel like I'm, I'm kind of a perfect combination, not perfect, but um, a kind of split combination of both. I think I kind of like you know that I can in some ways I can turn on a physique. Is that yeah, the word? he does facade. Facade, facade. Yeah. Which is uh, true because when he would get on the phone with his football coach, who's a black man, very very nice man, he'd have all this like slang. <laughs> he'd get off the phone and he tried the slang with me. I go, no, you're not on the phone anymore. <laughs> he go, oh yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So he does. He does know how to turn it off. That's why being in theater has just been so good for you, yeah. Isaac. <laughs> So, Another um, thing she told me that I couldn't say no to. Yeah, no, what, keep theater? Going. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's been in theater since he was seven, and he's like really, really talented at it. So I keep pushing him. So this recent audition was for The Little Mermaid Junior. And as soon as I heard they were doing The Little Mermaid Junior, I said, you're going to be Sebastian. He was like, okay. <laughs> I said, because on Broadway, Sebastian is played by a black man. And I said, and you're, and he has a, you have to sing. The, Sebastian has two major songs. So I said, start working on your Jamaican accent. Let's get an audition going. And he, he was cast as the role of Sebastian. So we're excited for that. So can you think of any comments, positive or negative, that 
stick with you from friends or you know um, teammates? Yeah, I went one. I whenever I played football for like a couple of years back, I played football for a. Well, I talked to when you're when you came to pick me up one day after practice. You would my friends are like, "Oh, your dad's white." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm adopted." And he's like, "Oh, okay." And so like two games later, he brings it up again, and so. So I don't I don't really usually have a problem with that. I, I think I kind of feel flattered in a way, but uh, it's just one of those things. I guess it just brings it. They want to talk about it. Yeah. Something interesting that happened a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago that that stick with me is you had an event at your middle school and it was a you know all the students were there, parents were there. It was an evening event and Isaac we, we just kept getting separated mom would go off and do stuff I would go off and do stuff and Isaac kept finding us and saying I want to introduce you to this friend dad I want to introduce you to this friend and that that really meant a lot to me because it it seems to me like you're getting at an age now where being adopted or having white parents you might not you know you might not make a big deal about it you might act embarrassed about it but you, you were the exact opposite you were like Either you were broadcasting it or you didn't care. You know, you were just like, I'm dad, this is mom. Because you could just kind of hide behind the fact that they don't know who your parents are. And then you don't have to put up with any questions or anybody being curious. Why do you think that you don't? Uh, I don't really, whenever I think of having white parents and being adopted and all of that, I don't really think of that as a something to hide or a disability or a something... Like a disadvantage. A disadvantage. I think of it more as being lucky, being accepted, being just kind of being all around great, grateful. I think grateful, happy, that kind of thing. And proud. Yeah. And from an adoptive parent standpoint, it's hard to hear that because it is all constantly drilled in us, which I agree with the policy, that your children should not have the role of feeling grateful for what has happened to them or feeling like they're lucky. When people have said to me, oh, they're so lucky, I, I recoil from that statement because I'm like, I don't view it as luck. I view it as God's ordainment. So, but, but the way he feels is organically the way he feels. And I'm not going to take that away from him because I think he shouldn't have to feel a certain way. If he feels proud of his family, he can feel proud of his family. And, and so I think it's important to note that we, don't, we want to be careful not to tell our kids how they're supposed to receive or how they're not supposed to receive um, or how they're supposed to view their, their experiences. Well, it's a thought, too, that, you know, in a perfect world, adoption wouldn't exist. And, I, and, and, and that's, to me, that's, that's just not the right attitude to have. You know, I, I think, you know, the way I look at it is if he think, he, you know, he's lucky to have us, Lori and I are incredibly lucky to have him. Right, and that's the way I feel. Like when people say, well, in a perfect world, there would, there would be no need for adoption. Again, I, I take offense to that statement because I'm like, but in that perfect world, he's not my son anymore. And that's not okay to me. So the, the ideology that adoption is because we live in a broken world doesn't work for us because we don't consider our family broken. We consider our family complete. And, and these are things that really have happened to us, uh, uh, you know, Thanks, Facebook. Yeah. You know, any, it's any, Facebook's any, fault. Yeah, it is. For everything. It is. But, Do you, you know. Do you hear that, Facebook? <laughs> We're going to get flagged I don't think now. they're worried. They're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and the, we had a, oh, so we wanted you to tell the incident about me coming into the cafeteria. Oh, yeah. So uh, I was getting my schedule changed, like, halfway through the school year. 
And so, uh, but tell about how the demographic of the cafeteria. Well, yeah, the dem. Uh, I'm not gonna use the, the layout of the cafeteria is kind of segregated. It's more the black kids are over here, the Asian kids are over here, white kids are right here. It's kind of just. They it's naturally not really, have naturally, chosen that. Yeah, and so you come up and you. I'm like, I gotta find Isaac. Yeah, and so uh, they call my name, and I'm like, okay. And so I go out into the hallway, and she tells me all the stuff about my schedule being switched. I'm like, okay. And so I go inside and. Uh, uh, after school that day, she asked, um, what did your friends think about uh, your mom being white? And I said, well, they didn't really care. They just said, well, how's your mom, mom going to come and not bring you food? And so I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah, that's true, mom. You could have stopped at Slotsky's or something. I, I got pizza. If I had known that was the biggest concern. <laughs> how's your mom going to pull you out of lunch and not bring food yeah. to you? Another funny incident to that is when Isaac was go walking into first grade, Jasmine was an infant, and I had her in a Moby wrap, and I heard this boy say to him, "Isaac, why your mama have a white, why your mama have a black baby?" And then um, Isaac goes, "Because that's my sister." So when Isaac got out of school that day, I said, "Isaac, I heard that kid say why your mama got a black baby." I said, "But why um, didn't he say why is your mama why is your mama white?" <laughs> like this first grader, it didn't occur to him, Isaac, why is your mom white? It was why does your white mom have a black baby? It's like somehow we worked, but me having heard didn't work in his mind. Um, and I, th I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> so uh, it was. It was the same thing this one time we were at a burger joint with uh, Jaden's very good friend's name is Cooper and, and Cooper's white and I'll tell you why that's relevant. So we're, we're, we're sitting at a fast food place and the oh, manager, wow. the owner comes over and he's just making conversation and Cooper just blurts out to the owner, I'm with them but, I, but they're not my mom and dad because I'm not black. He goes, I'm not, he goes, I'm with them, how he phrases, I'm with them but I'm not part of this family because I'm white. And then Billy and I are like, what are we? <laughs> so yeah, his that's friend, what he said. his seven-year-old friend, perceived us as a black family. So he didn't really work with us, but he didn't perceive it's just it was like hilarious. And the manager was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So and then another anecdote that was really cute. Tell him about um, at lunch sitting with a different group of friends. When you sat when you sat at the Asian table. Oh yeah, yeah. So um <laughs> I'm in, a, I'm in multiple. We're in 2018, and it is literally that segregated. I saw it. So <laughs> we're in a. I'm in a ton of uh, advanced classes for my school, and so in those classes, the the main races there are is black, or no, not black, uh, white, Indian, and Asian. And so I'll just sit with them sometimes because we'll just go for straight to class, and I'm too lazy to go find people else. You're actually the only black male in a lot of these classes. In yeah, I'm the only. Classes, yeah, I'm the only black, black male. male. So. Uh, they'll start talking about their parents. Like my mom took away, my mom took away my iPad because I got a seven, I, I got a ninety nine, and I'll, and so I'm like, oh my gosh, like my mom does the exact same thing, <laughs> and so, and so they say like, uh, uh, my mom freaked out because I got a ninety nine on a project, and I'm like, oh my god, my mom is Asian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, this, this describes my mom exactly. This is my mom. Like you are describing her. He came home, he said, I sat with my Asian friends today and I realized you're Asian. And I was like, I've always known it. <laughs> so uh, so our, the, the reason I think that that story is cute is because it just kind of shows like the racial lines really can cross. Like it doesn't have to be, even though at his middle school, they all kind of sit within their own uh, racial group because that's what the kids naturally are drawn to and chosen to do. Um, for Isaac, he doesn't. Isaac very much is able to fluidly move within all of the groups. 
Um, and so for us in finding and in deciding where do we live, what church do we go to, what would be the best environment for raising black children, we really believe that the best environment is a multiracial environment. It's more reflective of the world. It doesn't make sense to move to an all black community and it doesn't make sense to live in an all white community. It makes sense to live in a community with lots of diverse people. And Isaac is able to work in all of those situations. His friends I mean, span all ethnicities. And, and it, it works for him. And I think it works for him because he, had, he wasn't raised in one particular uh, viewpoint. Yeah. And so to wrap up, we'll end with, there was a, a study that we read about, I think it was done in Newsweek. And Time it, Magazine, is that the story you're going to tell? Yeah. So a bunch of families mm-hmm. were part of a, like a focus group, I guess. And they were, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up, so hop in if yeah, I okay. miss anything. But I'm like, what is he going at? What I'm getting, <laughs> they, were, they, were talking, Carry on. they were talking about race and, you know, how do we, how do we solve racism? Oh, right. Uh-huh. Um, oh, I know, I know what it is now. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> it took me a minute. There were two focus groups, and both of the fo- one focus group were black parents of black children, and the other focus group was white parents of white children. So, I mean, these were, this was not an adoptive study. And they told both groups, we would like you to go home and um, watch shows uh, that, that depict black families. So Blackish, um, there used to be a show, um, uh, Little, Little, remember that little show? You little like, Bill? Was like, yeah, Little Bill. Um, those kinds of things that have black characters. And we want you to watch those shows with your children, read those books, we're sending you with these children's books, and then we want you to discuss race. And they told both, both groups, the black families and the white families. Over the course of the days and weeks, every single one of the white families dropped out of the study. And when the, the professor interviewed them and said, why don't you want to participate in the study anymore? The white families were saying, because we're uncomfortable with it. We don't want to point out race to our children. We don't want to take these shows home and, and, and point out this kid has dark skin, this kid has light skin. Because they were afraid if they did that, it would make their children racist. And the, the point of the study was black families don't get to choose. They have to discuss these things. They don't have a choice. White families, by and large, because they have a choice, choose not to discuss these things. And that is actually doing a disservice to our kids. Because when we discuss race and we make discussing race, we say terminology like black, white, Asian, you can see that we fluidly speak about race. When you make it a, a deal, a, 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 something to be awkward about, yep. suddenly then you're, you're making it sound like there's something wrong with it. And I've discovered this recently, like that story about, about him discovering it, that I was Asian at lunch. I told that story at a, at a round table, all of the couples were white. And literally the whole room got quiet. The, they shifted in their seats and looked around. Like they were not comfortable with me mentioning that my black child sat with Asian kids. All of it was super uncomfortable for them. They got squirmy. No one asked any questions. No one really laughed. They didn't think it was a cute story. And I'm like, uh-oh, wrong crowd. <laughs> um, and those are the kinds of situations that we come across where you just by and large within white communities don't talk about race at all. Because if you talk about it, you're racist. Um, and, and, I, and I think the point of the study was that they found that the exact opposite was true, that a focus group was not going to solve racism. Right. But Where does but, it stem from? But the solution, the best solution for racism is talking about race. Right. You know, it's not what they talked about. That, that was irrelevant. It was that it was talked about. That was the solution. It's not swept under the rug. It's not... Them um, versus us. Yeah. The world is colorblind. It's 
let's just let's just talk about it. What are your feelings? What have you noticed? And just by having that conversation and not making it awkward, that that's that's how it benefits. It's unbelievably refreshing when I go up to Delaware and New York and Long Island, and I'm with my friends who are black because. We will spend the whole drive from them picking me up to the airport to their house talking about race the entire time. And it's super refreshing to me because I'm like back in the South with all my white friends, I can't do this because within minutes, the conversation's changed. With them, it's 45 minutes of da, 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 and we're just going back and forth. And, um, and I, it, it feels so comforting. It's like, finally, I'm with my people. I can talk about race and not be looked at like I've got something wrong with me. Um, and that is like how they have their relationships are fluid that way. They talk about race because it is part of life. It's not something to overcome. It's not something to be ashamed of or hide. Um, and, and that's the way our family is. It's just we talk about it because it is. So did we go too long for? We're perfect. We have about five or six minutes if there's any questions. So we can probably take at least two and depending on the family and So any questions? Yeah, so um, we started adopting, I guess, came into the family. Yep. Um, did you have uh, any black friends? And then how was that initial ask of the yeah, none, zero, zero. No, Pam, Pam, I met five or six years ago. Zero black friends. How did that yeah. conversation go with the coach <laughs> someone to specifically? Oh, I didn't, thankfully. <laughs> we always batted around for years. Like, how do you walk up to somebody and say, you're black, can my kid's black, here's a picture, can I be your best friend? You don't. <laughs> So what I did was I just put myself in some more diverse situations. And when that happened and they realized what the terminology that the black community uses is woke, when they realized that I understood that where they were coming from, then the, those um, relationships naturally formed. So no, we had zero um, relationships and it wasn't on purpose. It was because I had been raised in a white community by white parents in a white school, went to a white college. I mean, you know what I mean? Like it just, married a white man. It was all just this is the way it was. Um, and I was determined I was not going to set out and use people for that purpose that I needed these relationships to become organic and they have and they really are uh, today my closest friends um, and I'm thankful yep. for that. Are doing that now. I was actually like a little bit aggravated. It was like, well, what about when they're older? How do I talk? Or we need to really be talking about some deeper things. Like, mm -hmm. how are we going to address these certain situations? Right. And now I can do that. So. Yes. Yeah. It's it's wonderful to that the kids are young enough to where you can make your mistakes before they're old enough to see you make those mistakes. Yeah. You know, they can look back at pictures and be like, Mom, what were you thinking? <laughs> but. No. Yeah, when you get them young, at least you have the ability to kind of grow with them. You grow together. Um, but yeah, you, you don't have, that's a good point that when you receive this three-day-old beautiful child, you don't already have to have the answers to how you're going to handle racism when they get in high school. Mm -hmm. Like, it will, it will come. You don't have to solve it all, yep. and no, you don't owe anybody an explanation. What are you going to do if? Well, I guess we're going to do what we will if anything happens. I mean, lots of things can happen with a white child that you're going to have to navigate. Yep. So you don't have to feel that you need to have it all taken care of for the next 30 years. Just take today. Let's change the baby's diaper. Let's put some lotion Today's on got the enough baby. stress. <laughs> exactly.
yeah, that, that's it. I'll try to be brief on that one. We, we've experimented, as far as church goes, we've definitely experimented. We've tried a, a couple of black churches, stayed with them for a while. The, the church we're at now is just a small church where we were going to a bigger church that was a black church, and we left because of the size. But our interactions, as I said before, for the most part, black, black, the black community are the most inviting, welcoming, uh, comfortable people when they see our family. Um, we attended a black a mega church that was all black for three years, and I was serving. Isaac and I were serving in the nursery together. Billy played in the band, and it was it was it was good because our kids could finally you know be in a situation where they didn't stand out. They blended in, so it was really good for them. Um, and Billy and I were okay standing out. You know, we can handle that. We're adults. But what we discovered is that an all-black church was no more reflective of our family than an all-white church. So we still struggled with relationships. Yeah. And so we went back to the church we had been with before, which is a smaller church, uh, predominantly white. Isaac had a perspective at the black when we were with the black church for three years that he liked that he... You said you liked it because you yeah. didn't feel, you know... I didn't really feel... I didn't really have a problem with being like the only because usually the other churches we went to Prestonwood places like that. Then you don't know what that is. Um, Prestonwood's Everybody huge. Knows Everybody knows Prestonwood. Who are we kidding? But uh, I, I was fine sticking out. Uh, it was kind of special, I guess. Not fun. I because mean, he's outgoing, outgoing, so he really doesn't mind it. Yeah, but uh, and then the black church uh, I served, so I wasn't really in the. We didn't. Really, there wasn't really a children's group, but for. I was able to I was able to make friends, but I wasn't really because it was so big. I wasn't really able to keep like those up, like keep those up because like one week somebody would show up and then I'd make friends with them, and then they wouldn't show up for five more weeks. So I'd constantly be trying to like hey, hey and then like they wouldn't show up, so it'd be kind of it. Would, yeah, so I don't the problem that I didn't really have a problem with the church. The church was fun. I had all of the people were awesome. They were really nice, but uh, the only problem I had with it was the size. Yeah. What, what I liked about the church particularly was the worship style is completely different than in white church. And um, there, one Easter, we were standing, we, if it was like a holiday, I always wanted the kids to be in the pew with us so they could experience the worship and not go to Sunday school right away. Jasmine was, she's seven now, so she was probably five. And um, they had done like tons of music. The, the music would last like an hour sometimes. So they had already done tons. And typically within white church, it's like you do your three, then you do a little prayer, then you do one more, and everybody sits down quietly. That's not how it goes. And so. And you'd stare at the done, one person that rose their hands yeah, during like, the song, like, look at that weirdo. Well, yeah. So <laughs> in black church, it was like very lively. Everybody's having a good time. Okay. So the worship pastor says, all right, y'all, now this, now we're, now we're really going to worship. And I'm like, what have we been doing for an hour? <laughs> he goes, now we're really going to worship. And Jasmine goes, ooh, she stands up in the aisle and goes, it's about to get good. <laughs> and I was like, that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> she needs this. Well, so it is definitely something we see a benefit to. Yeah. One thing, uh, one thing about the school, though, I read a book uh, by an adult adoptee. He was black and he'd been raised by white parents. And he was specifically addressing the issue of like, do you, uh, of school, like, do you, you know, should he have been put in a should inner city school a, yeah. uh, where he's around other people of his race or they lived in the suburbs and should he go to a school that would have a good education, but he'd stand out as the only black person. He was like, this is a ridiculous argument, is what he said. He's like, you go to the place with the good school, the better school, the better education. So because you're thinking, we're thinking long term here. It's not just the 18 years you're in the school system. It's how is those, how are those 18 years going to impact you for the rest of your life? 
Yeah. So you go with the odds, always. Okay, last question. Uh, so for your younger uh, children or your brother or sisters, uh, how are their how are the, the perceptions of them or their experiences different than your own, considering you're the firstborn? Uh, and also, I mean, uh, you know, you're, you've accomplished a, a significant amount, and your personality might be different than your siblings. Um, I think, well, Jaden, Jaden is extremely, he's not, he's Be a, nice, you're on record. I am. I'm like, wait a minute, go over this. I'm scared. Yeah, you might want to take this out of <laughs> But, um, he's, he, in, a, in the nicest way possible, he is, he's very outgoing in a way that he doesn't really care about his surroundings. Like, he doesn't really care that... I mean, I don't He's not aware of... He's not aware of... He's not aware of... He's not aware of... He's the one that said, Adon didn't tell anybody I was adopted. Yeah, like, yeah, he, he's like, how did... Like, he and a kid got into it a couple of days ago, and then... Uh, I'm not we told that, that story yeah. in here. Oh, okay, well, um, <laughs> he, um, he said... The kid brought up uh, a thing about race, and he's like, "How did he know I was adopted? I I didn't even tell him." So he didn't really. He's kind of. I would. I want to say slow, but he. he <laughs> <laughs> I love he's you, not slow. You know, he he, he's not. He just crosses. He crosses. No, there you go. Slow, I mean, I'm slow. He's with chill. Adult. What yeah. we say is he's chill. He's Laid chill. back. Chill. Nothing mm -hmm. rattles him. Yeah. Nothing affects him. Yeah. yeah. Not Has aware. You, uh, totally unaware. Are you aware of Vivi ever making a comment about the fact that all of her siblings are black but her? Has she ever said anything? No. 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 She she's I don't I don't I don't Vivi's kind of the same way as Jaden. She doesn't really care. I mean, you're her mom and dad. She loves you guys. That's it. And then Jasmine I think is just too young to notice. I mean, she she I don't even think she really could understand. She, she Jasmine asked in seven years she's asked about adoption one time and it was maybe like a year ago and she asked about uh, about being adopted she doesn't quite grasp the concept of birth mother um, and so I was just telling her a little bit of the story and she said I think that she saw that your family had two black kids and two uh, and I mean two black people meaning Jaden and um, and Isaac and three white people meaning Vivi and the two of us so she wanted it to be even <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, and so that was just kind of like, that's the only time she's talked about it. And that was like her perspective is that she likes that it's even racially. Yeah. <laughs> and then you, uh, you, you asked, um, what do you think makes their, um, their point of view different from mine? I think mine is, I think possibly I'm uh, more self-conscious about not about the fact that you know people sometimes people stare and some well I used to be about sometimes people stare and sometimes people do this kind of notice like, things like they'll do this little head like yeah. look, head look away kind of thing but I think I've gotten better with uh, with that I mean I'm not I'm never I'm never ashamed of anything like this I'm like I've never ever that's never ever gone through my mind it's just kind kind of I guess I notice things a little bit more because he's 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 in those teen years where it's like we'll walk into a room I'm loud Jasmine's extremely loud and he'll be like mom shh, people are looking at us and I go people always look at us Isaac we could walk in quietly and people look at us but yeah. you know when you're a teenager like your mom's embarrassing and your little sister's super embarrassing so he's much more self-conscious now and aware that people would draw attention so but I think that's because he's a teenager yeah 
Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that, but then I'm like, wait, then, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't really focus on the adoption point of view. Uh, or I don't really focus on like if we go into a room and they're being loud. I'll, I don't really. I'm not gonna. My first thought's not gonna be, oh, well, y'all stop. Y'all are instead. Because we yeah, stand out. They're physically. gonna stand out and we just look bad. I, I don't think that. I'll just think, Jay hasn't stopped. Use your ins inside voice. Like, right. like she's come like, hey Isaac, how's it going? And I'm like, calm, calm down. <laughs> We like to tease Isaac. Vivi's going to join him in middle school next year, so he'll be an eighth grader and she'll be a sixth grader. She said, when I see him in the halls, I'm going to go, my brother! <laughs> <laughs> Isaac! And he's like, no, don't no, do it. <laughs> no. Uh. So. Well, thank y'all so much yeah. for coming to share.